This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin, or Life Among the Lowly, by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Volume 1, Chapter 1 in which the reader is introduced to a man of humanity. Late in the afternoon of a chilly day in February, two gentlemen were sitting alone over their wine in a well-furnished dining-parlor in the town of P. in Kentucky. There were no servants present, and the gentlemen, with chairs closely approaching, seemed to be discussing some subject with great earnestness. For convenience' sake we have said hitherto two gentlemen. One of the parties, however, when critically examined, did not seem, strictly speaking, to come under the species. He was a short, thick-set man, with coarse, commonplace features, and that swaggering air of pretension which marks a low man who is trying to elbow his way upward in the world. He was much overdressed, in a gaudy vest of many colors, a blue neckerchief, bedropped gaily with yellow spots, and arranged with a flaunting tie, quite in keeping with the general air of the man. His hands, large and coarse, were plentifully bedecked with rings, and he wore a heavy gold watch-chain, with a bundle of seals of portentous size, and a great variety of colors attached to it, which in the ardor of conversation he was in the habit of flourishing and jingling with evident satisfaction. His conversation was in free and easy defiance of Murray's grammar. English Grammar, 1795, by Lindley Murray, 1745-1826, the most authoritative American grammarian of his day, and was garnished at convenient intervals with various profane expressions which not even the desire to be graphic in our account shall induce us to transcribe. His companion, Mr. Shelby, had the appearance of a gentleman, and the arrangements of the house and the general air of the housekeeping indicated easy and even opulent circumstances. As we before stated, the two were in the midst of an earnest conversation. "'That is the way I should arrange the matter,' said Mr. Shelby. "'I can't make trade that way. I positively can't, Mr. Shelby,' said the other, holding up a glass of wine between his eye and the light. "'Why, the fact is, Haley, Tom is an uncommon fellow. He is certainly worth that sum anywhere. Steady, honest, capable, manages my whole farm like a clock.' "'You mean honest as niggers go,' said Haley, helping himself to a glass of brandy. "'No.' I mean, really, Tom is a good, steady, sensible, pious fellow. He got religion at a camp-meeting, four years ago, and I believe he really did get it. I've trusted him, since then, with everything I have—money, house, horses—and let him come and go round the country, and I always found him true and square in everything." "'Some folks don't believe there is pious niggers, Shelby,' said Haley with a candid flourish of his hand. "'But I do. I had a fellow, now, in this year last lot I took to Orleans. "'Twas as good as a meetin' now, really, to hear that critter pray. "'And he was quite gentle and quiet-like. "'He fetched me a good sum, too, for I bought him cheap of a man that was obliged to sell out. "'So I realized six hundred on him. 
Yes, I consider religion a valuable thing in a nigger, when it's the genuine article, and no mistake." "'Well, Tom's got the real article, if ever a fellow had,' rejoined the other. "'Why, last fall I let him go to Cincinnati alone, to do business for me, and bring home five hundred dollars. Tom,' says I to him, "'I trust you, because I think you're a Christian. I know you wouldn't cheat.' Tom comes back, sure enough. I knew he would. Some low fellows, they say, said to him, "'Tom, why don't you make tracks for Canada?' Ah, uh, Master trusted me, and I couldn't,' they told me about it. I am sorry to part with Tom, I must say. You ought to let him cover the whole balance of the debt. And you would, Haley, if you had any conscience.' "'Well, I've got just as much conscience as any man in business can afford to keep. Just a little, you know, to swear by, as t'were,' said the trader jocularly. And then I'm ready to do anything in reason to oblige friends, but this, yar, you see, is a leetle too hard on a fellow, a leetle too hard." The trader sighed contemplatively, and poured out some more brandy. "'Well, then, Haley, how will you trade?' said Mr. Shelby, after an uneasy interval of silence. "'Well, haven't you a boy or a gal that you could throw in with Tom?' Hmm. None that I could well spare. To tell the truth, it's only hard necessity makes me willing to sell it all. I don't like parting with any of my hands. That's fact." Here the door opened, and a small quadroon boy, between four and five years of age, entered the room. There was something in his appearance remarkably beautiful and engaging. His black hair, fine as floss silk, hung in glossy curls about his round, dimpled face while a pair of large, dark eyes, full of fire and softness, looked out from beneath the rich, long lashes, as he peered curiously into the apartment. A gay robe of scarlet and yellow plaid, carefully made and neatly fitted, set off to advantage the dark and rich style of his beauty, and a certain comic air of assurance, blended with bashfulness, showed that he had been not unused to being petted and noticed by his master. "'Hello, Jim Crow,' said Mr. Shelby, whistling and snapping a bunch of raisins towards him. "'Pick that up, now.' The child scampered, with all his little strength, after the prize, while his master laughed. "'Come here, Jim Crow,' said he. The child came up, and the master patted the curly head, and chucked him under the chin. "'Now, Jim, show this gentleman how you can dance and sing.' The boy commenced one of those wild, grotesque songs common among the negroes, in a rich, clear voice, accompanying his singing with many comic evolutions of the hands, feet, and whole body, in all perfect time to the music. "'Bravo!' said Haley, throwing him a quarter of an orange. "'Now, Jim, walk like old Uncle Cudjo when he has the rheumatism,' said his master. Instantly the flexible limbs of the child assumed the appearance of deformity and distortion, as, with his back humped up and his master's stick in his hand, he hobbled about the room, his childish face drawn into a doleful pucker, and spitting from right to left in imitation of an old man. Both gentlemen laughed uproariously. <laughs> "'Now, Jim,' said his master, "'show us how old Elder Robbins leads the psalm.' The boy drew his chubby face down to a formidable length, and commenced toning a psalm-tune through his nose, with imperturbable gravity. "'Hurrah! Bravo! What a young'un!' said Haley. "'That chap's a case, I'll promise.' "'Tell you what,' he said, 
suddenly clapping his hand on Mr. Shelby's shoulder. "'Fling in that chap, and I'll settle the business, I will. Come, now, if that ain't doing the thing up about the rightest.' At this moment the door was pushed gently open, and a young quadroon woman, apparently about twenty-five, entered the room. There needed only a glance from the child to her to identify her as its mother. There was the same rich, full, dark eye, with its long lashes, the same ripples of silky black hair. The brown of her complexion gave way on the cheek to a perceptible flush, which deepened as she saw the gaze of the strange man fixed upon her in bold and undisguised admiration. Her dress was of the neatest possible fit, and set off to advantage her finely moulded shape. A delicately formed hand and a trim foot and ankle were items of appearance that did not escape the quick eye of the trader, well used to run up at a glance the points of a fine female article. "'Well, Eliza,' said her master, as she stopped and looked hesitatingly at him. "'I was looking for Harry, please, sir,' and the boy bounded toward her, showing his spoils, which he had gathered in the skirt of his robe. "'Well, take him away, then,' said Mr. Shelby, and hastily she withdrew, carrying the child on her arm. "'By Jupiter!' said the trader, turning to him in admiration. "'There's an article, now. You might make your fortune on that our gal in New Orleans any day. I've seen over a thousand in my day paid down for gals not a bit handsomer.' "'I don't want to make my fortune on her,' said Mr. Shelby, dryly and seeking to turn the conversation he uncorked a bottle of fresh wine, and asked his companion's opinion of it. "'Capital, sir! First chop!' said the trader. Then turning, and slapping his hand familiarly on Shelby's shoulder, he added, "'Come! How will you trade about the gal? What shall I say for her? What, what'll you take?' "'Mr. Haley, she is not to be sold,' said Shelby. "'My wife would not part with her for her weight in gold.' "'Aye, aye!' Women always say such things, cause they hadn't no sort of calculation. Just show em how many watches, feathers, and trinkets one's weight in gold would buy, and that alters the case, I reckon. I tell you, Haley, this must not be spoken of. I say no, and I mean no, said Shelby decidedly. Well, you'll let me have the boy, though, said the trader. You must own I've come down pretty handsomely for him. What on earth can you want with the child? said Shelby. Why, I've got a friend that's going into this yard branch of the business, wants to buy up handsome boys to raise for the market. Fancy articles entirely, sell for waiters and so on, to richens that can pay for handsome ones. It sets off one of your great places, a real handsome boy to open door, wait, and tend. They fetch a good sum, and this little devil is such a comical musical concern, he's just the article. I would rather not sell him, said Mr. Shelby thoughtfully. The fact is, sir, I'm a humane man, and I hate to take the boy from his mother, sir." "'Oh, you do? La! Yes, something of that are natter. I understand perfectly. It is mighty unpleasant getting on with women sometimes. I allus hates these yar screechin', screamin' times. They are mighty unpleasant. But as I manages business I generally avoids em, sir. Now. What if you get the girl off for a day or a week or so? Then the thing's done quietly, all over before she comes home. Your wife might get her some earrings or a new gown or some such truck uh, to make up with her." I'm afraid not. Lord bless you, yes. These critters ain't like white folks, you know. They gets over things, only manage right. 
Now, they say, said Haley, assuming a candid and confidential air, that this kind of trade is hardening to the feelings. But I never found it so. Fact is, I never could do things up the way some fellers manage the business. I've seen em as would pull a woman's child out of her arms and set em up to sell, and she's screechin' like mad all the time. Very bad policy. Damages the article. Makes em quite unfit for service sometimes. I knew a real handsome gal once in Orleans, as was entirely ruined by this sort of handlin'. The fellow that was tradin' for her didn't want her baby, and she was one of your real high sort when her blood was up. I tell you, she squeezed up her child in her arms, and talked, and went on real awful. It kinder makes my blood run cold to think of it. And when they carried off the child, and locked her up, she just went raving mad, and died in a week. Clear waste, sir, of a thousand dollars, just for want of management. There's where it is. It's always best to do the humane thing, sir. That's been my experience." And the trader leaned back in his chair, and folded his arm, with an air of virtuous decision, apparently considering himself a second Wilberforce. The subject appeared to interest the gentleman deeply, for while Mr. Shelby was thoughtfully peeling an orange, Haley broke out afresh, with becoming diffidence, but as if actually driven by the force of truth to say a few words more. It don't look well now for a feller to be praising himself, but I say it just because it's the truth. I believe I'm reckoned to bring in about the finest droves of niggers that is brought in. At least, I've been told so. If I have once, I reckon I have a hundred times. All in good case, fat and likely, and I lose as few as any man in the business. And I lays it all to my management, sir. And humanity, sir, I may say, is the great pillar of my management." Mr. Shelby did not know what to say, and so he said, Indeed. Now, I've been laughed at for my notions, sir, and I've been talked to. Uh, they ain't popular, and they ain't common. But I stuck to em, sir. I've stuck to em, and realized well on em. Yes, sir, they have paid their passage, I may say." And the trader laughed at his joke. There was something so piquant and original in these elucidations of humanity, that Mr. Shelby could not help laughing in company. Perhaps you laugh, too, dear reader, but you know humanity comes out in a variety of strange forms nowadays, and there is no end to the odd things that humane people will say and do. Mr. Shelby's laugh encouraged the trader to proceed. It's strange now, but I never could beat this into people's heads. Now, there was Tom Loker, my old partner, down in Natchez. He was a clever fellow, Tom was, only the very devil with niggers. On principle, twas, you see, for a better-hearted feller never broke bread. Twas his system, sir. I used to talk to Tom. Why, Tom, I used to say, when your gals take on and cry, What's the use of crackin' on em over the head and knockin' on em round? It's ridiculous, says I, and don't do no sort of good. Why, I don't see no harm in their cryin', says I. It's nater, says I, and if nater can't blow off one way, it will another. Besides, Tom, says I, it just spiles your gals. They get sickly and down in the mouth, and sometimes they gets ugly, particularly yellow gals do, and it's the devil and all gettin' on em broke in. Now, says I, why can't you kinder coax em up and speak em fair? 
Depend on it, Tom, a little humanity thrown in along goes a heap further than all your jawin' and crackin', and it pays better, says I. Depend on it. But Tom couldn't get the hang on it, and he spiled so many for me that I had to break off with him, though he was a good-hearted fellow, and as fair a business hand as is goin'. "'And do you find your ways of managing do the business better than Tom's?' said Mr. Shelby. "'Why, yes, sir, I may say so. You see, when I anyways can, I takes a leetle care about the unpleasant parts, like sellin' young'uns and that. Get the gals out of the way, out of sight, out of mind, you know. And when it's clean done, and can't be helped, they naturally gets used to it. Tain't, you know, as if it was white folks that's brought up in the way of spectin' to keep their children and wives and all that. Niggers, you know, that's fetched up properly. Hain't no kind of spectations of no kind, so all these things comes easier. I'm afraid mine are not properly brought up, then, said Mr. Shelby. Spose not. You Kentucky folks spile your niggers. You mean well by em, but tain't no real kindness after all. Now, a nigger, you see, what's got to be hacked and tumbled round the world, and sold to Tom and Dick and the Lord knows who, tain't no kindness to be given on him notions and expectations, and bringin' on him up too well, for the rough and tumble comes all the harder on him arter. Now, I venture to say your niggers would be quite chop-fallen in a place where some of your plantation niggers would be singin' and whoopin' like all possessed. Every man, you know, Mr. Shelby, naturally thinks well on his own ways and I think I treat niggers just about as well as it's ever worth while to treat em. "'It's a happy thing to be satisfied,' said Mr. Shelby, with a slight shrug, and some perceptible feelings of a disagreeable nature. "'Well,' said Haley, after they had both silently picked their nuts for a season, "'what do you say?' "'I'll think the matter over and talk with my wife,' said Mr. Shelby. "'Meantime, Haley, if you want the matter carried on in the quiet way you speak of, You'd best not let your business in this neighborhood be known. It will get out among my boys, and it will not be a particularly quiet business getting away any of my fellows, if they know it. I'll promise you." "'Oh, certainly, by all means, Mum, of course. Uh, but I'll tell you, I'm in a devil of a hurry, and shall want to know as soon as possible what I may depend on,' said he, rising and putting on his overcoat. "'Well, call up this evening, between six and seven and you shall have my answer," said Mr. Shelby, and the trader bowed himself out of the apartment. "'I'd like to have been able to kick the fellow down the steps,' said he to himself, as he saw the door fairly closed, with his impudent assurance, but he knows how much he has me at advantage. If anybody had ever said to me that I should sell Tom down south to one of those rascally traders, I should have said, "'Is thy servant a dog, that he should do this thing?' And now it must come, for aught I see, and Eliza's child, too. I know that I shall have some fuss with wife about that, and for that matter about Tom, too. So much for being in debt. Hey, ho! Oh, the fellow sees his advantage, and means to push it. Perhaps the mildest form of the system of slavery is to be seen in the state of Kentucky. The general prevalence of agricultural pursuits of a quiet and gradual nature, not requiring those periodic seasons of hurry and pressure that are called for in the business of more southern districts, makes the task of the negro a more healthful and reasonable one. 
while the master, content with a more gradual style of acquisition, has not those temptations to hard-heartedness which always overcome frail human nature when the prospect of sudden and rapid gain is weighed in the balance, with no heavier counterpoise than the interests of the helpless and unprotected. Whoever visits some estates there, and witnesses the good-humoured indulgence of some masters and mistresses, and the affectionate loyalty of some slaves, might be tempted to dream the oft-fabled poetic legend of a patriarchal institution, and all that. But over and above the scene there broods a portentous shadow, the shadow of law. So long as the law considers all these human beings, with beating hearts and living affections, only as so many things belonging to a master, so long as the failure, or misfortune, or imprudence, or death of the kindest owner, may cause them any day to exchange a life of kind protection and indulgence for one of hopeless misery and toil, so long it is impossible to make anything beautiful or desirable in the best regulated administration of slavery. Mr. Shelby was a fair average kind of man, good-natured and kindly, and disposed to easy indulgence of those around him and there had never been a lack of anything which might contribute to the physical comfort of the negroes on his estate. He had, however, speculated largely and quite loosely, had involved himself deeply, and his notes to a large amount had come into the hands of Haley, and this small piece of information is the key to the preceding conversation. Now, it had so happened that in approaching the door, Eliza had caught enough of the conversation to know that a trader was making offers to her master for somebody. She would gladly have stopped at the door to listen as she came out, but her mistress just then calling, she was obliged to hasten away. Still, she thought she heard the trader make an offer for her boy. Could she be mistaken? Her heart swelled and throbbed, and she involuntarily strained him so tight that the little fellow looked up into her face in astonishment. "'Eliza, girl, what ails you to-day?' said her mistress, when Eliza had upset the wash-pitcher, knocked down the work-stand, and finally was abstractedly offering her mistress a long nightgown in place of the silk dress she had ordered her to bring from the wardrobe. Eliza started. "'Oh, missus!' she said, raising her eyes. Then, bursting into tears, she sat down in a chair and began sobbing. "'Why, Eliza, child, what ails you?' said her mistress. "'Oh, missus, missus!' said Eliza. "'There's been a trader talking with Master in the parlour. I heard him.' "'Well, silly child, suppose there was.' "'Oh, missus, do you suppose Master would sell my Harry?' And the poor creature threw herself into a chair and sobbed convulsively. "'Sell him? No, you foolish girl. You know your Master never deals with those southern traders, and never means to sell any of his servants, as long as they behave well.' "'Why, you silly child, who do you think would want to buy your Harry? Do you think all the world are set on him as you are, you goosey? Come, cheer up and hook my dress. There, now, put my back hair up in that pretty braid you learnt the other day, and don't go listening at doors any more. Well, but, Mrs., you never would give your consent to—to—nonsense, child, to be sure I shouldn't. What do you talk so for? I would as soon have one of my own children sold. But really, Eliza, you are getting altogether too proud of that little fellow. A man can't put his nose into the door, but you think he must be coming to buy him." Reassured by her mistress's confident tone, 
Eliza proceeded nimbly and adroitly with her toilet, laughing at her own fears as she proceeded. Mrs. Shelby was a woman of high class, both intellectually and morally. To that natural magnanimity and generosity of mind which one often marks as characteristic of the women of Kentucky, she added high moral and religious sensibility and principle, carried out with great energy and ability into practical results. Her husband, who made no professions to any particular religious character, nevertheless reverenced and respected the consistency of hers, and stood perhaps a little in awe of her opinion. Certain it was that he gave her unlimited scope in all her benevolent efforts for the comfort, instruction, and improvement of her servants, though he never took any decided part in them himself. In fact, if not exactly a believer in the doctrine of the efficiency of the extra good works of saints, he really seemed somehow or other to fancy that his wife had piety and benevolence enough for two, to indulge a shadowy expectation of getting into heaven through her superabundance of qualities, to which he made no particular pretension. The heaviest load on his mind, after his conversation with the trader, lay in the foreseen necessity of breaking to his wife the arrangement contemplated, meeting the importunities and opposition which he knew he should have reason to encounter. Mrs. Shelby, being entirely ignorant of her husband's embarrassments, and knowing only the general kindliness of his temper, had been quite sincere in the entire incredulity with which she had met Eliza's suspicions. In fact, she dismissed the matter from her mind, without a second thought, and, being occupied in preparations for an evening visit, it passed out of her thoughts entirely. End of chapter 1 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. UNCLE TOM'S CABIN by Harriet Beecher Stowe CHAPTER Two, THE MOTHER Eliza had been brought up by her mistress, from girlhood, as a petted and indulged favorite. The traveller in the South must often have remarked that peculiar air of refinement, that softness of voice and manner, which seems in many cases to be a particular gift to the quadroon and mulatto women. These natural graces in the quadroon are often united with beauty of the most dazzling kind, and in almost every case with a personal appearance prepossessing and agreeable. Eliza, such as we have described her, is not a fancy sketch, but taken from remembrance as we saw her years ago in Kentucky. Safe under the protecting care of her mistress, Eliza had reached maturity without those temptations which make beauty so fatal an inheritance to a slave. She had been married to a bright and talented young mulatto man who was a slave on a neighboring estate, and bore the name of George Harris. This young man had been hired out by his master to work in a bagging factory, where his adroitness and ingenuity caused him to be considered the first hand in the place. He had invented a machine for the cleaning of the hemp, which, considering the education and circumstances of the inventor, displayed quite as much mechanical genius as Whitney's cotton-gin. Note, a machine of this description was really the invention of a young colored man in Kentucky. Mrs. Stowe's note. He was possessed of a handsome person and pleasing manners, and was a general favorite in the factory. Nevertheless, as this young man was in the eye of the law not a man but a thing, 
All these superior qualifications were subject to the control of a vulgar, narrow-minded, tyrannical master. This same gentleman, having heard of the fame of George's invention, took a ride over to the factory to see what this intelligent chattel had been about. He was received with great enthusiasm by the employer, who congratulated him on possessing so valuable a slave. He was waited upon over the factory, shown the machinery by George, who, in high spirits, talked so fluently, held himself so erect, looked so handsome and manly, that his master began to feel an uneasy consciousness of inferiority. What business had this slave to be marching round the country, inventing machines, and holding up his head among gentlemen? He'd soon put a stop to it. He'd take him back, and put him to hoeing and digging, and see if he'd step about so smart. Accordingly, the manufacturer and all hands concerned were astounded when he suddenly demanded George's wages, and announced his intention of taking him home. "'But, uh, Mr. Harris,' remonstrated the manufacturer, "'isn't this uh, rather sudden? What if it is? Isn't the man mine?' "'We would be willing, sir, to increase the rate of compensation.' "'No object at all, sir. I don't need to hire any of my hands out, unless I've a mind to.' "'But, sir, he seems peculiarly adapted to this business.' "'Dare say he may be. Never was much adapted to anything that I set him about, I'll be bound.' "'But only think of his inventing this machine,' interposed one of the workmen, rather unluckily. "'Oh, yes, a machine for saving work, is it? He'd invent that, I'll be bound. Let a nigger alone for that any time. They are all labor-saving machines themselves, every one of them. No, he shall tramp.' George had stood like one transfixed, at hearing his doom thus suddenly pronounced by a power that he knew was irresistible. He folded his arms, tightly pressed in his lips, but a whole volcano of bitter feelings burned in his bosom, and sent streams of fire through his veins. He breathed short, and his large dark eyes flashed like live coals, and he might have broken out into some dangerous ebullition, had not the kindly manufacturer touched him on the arm and said in a low tone, "'Give way, George. Go with him for the present. We'll try to help you yet.' The tyrant observed the whisper, and conjectured its import, though he could not hear what was said, and he inwardly strengthened himself in his determination to keep the power he possessed over his victim. George was taken home, and put to the meanest drudgery of the farm. He had been able to repress every disrespectful word, but the flashing eye, the gloomy and troubled brow, were part of a natural language that could not be repressed. Indubitable signs which showed too plainly that the man could not become a thing. It was during the happy period of his employment in the factory that George had seen and married his wife. During that period, being much trusted and favoured by his employer, he had free liberty to come and go at discretion. The marriage was highly approved of by Mrs. Shelby, who, with a little womanly complacency in matchmaking, felt pleased to unite her handsome favourite with one of her own class who seemed in every way suited to her. And so they were married in her mistress's great parlour, and her mistress herself adorned the bride's beautiful hair with orange blossoms, and threw over it the bridal veil, which certainly could scarce have rested on a fairer head and there was no lack of white gloves, and cake, and wine, of admiring guests to praise the bride's beauty, and her mistress's indulgence and liberality. For a year or two Eliza saw her husband frequently, and there was nothing to interrupt their happiness except the loss of two infant children, to whom she was passionately attached, 
and whom she mourned with a grief so intense as to call for gentle remonstrance from her mistress, who sought, with maternal anxiety, to direct her naturally passionate feelings within the bounds of reason and religion. After the birth of little Harry, however, she had gradually become tranquilized and settled, and every bleeding tie and throbbing nerve, once more entwined with that little life, seemed to become sound and healthful, and Eliza was a happy woman up to the time that her husband was rudely torn from his kind employer, and brought under the iron sway of his legal owner. The manufacturer, true to his word, visited Mr. Harris a week or two after George had been taken away, when, as he hoped, the heat of the occasion had passed away, and tried every possible inducement to lead him to restore him to his former employment. "'You needn't trouble yourself to talk any longer,' said he, doggedly. "'I know my own business, sir.' "'I did not presume to interfere with it, sir. I only thought that you might think it for your interest to let your man to us on the terms proposed.' "'Oh, I understand the matter well enough. I saw your winking and whispering the day I took him out of the factory. But you don't come it over me that way. It's a free country, sir. The man's mine, and I do what I please with him. That's it.' And so fell George's last hope. Nothing before him but a life of toil and drudgery, rendered more bitter by every little smarting vexation and indignity which tyrannical ingenuity could devise. A very humane jurist once said, The worst use you can put a man to is to hang him. No, there is another use that a man can be put to that is worse. End of chapter 2 this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe. Chapter 3 The Husband and Father. Mrs. Shelby had gone on her visit, and Eliza stood in the veranda, rather dejectedly looking after the retreating carriage, when a hand was laid on her shoulder. She turned, and a bright smile lighted up her fine eyes. "'George, is it you? How you frightened me!' "'Well, I am so glad you's come. Missus is gone to spend the afternoon. So come into my little room, and we'll have this time all to ourselves.' Saying this, she drew him into a neat little apartment opening on the veranda, where she generally sat at her sewing, within call of her mistress. "'How glad I am! Why don't you smile? And look at Harry, how he grows!' The boy stood shyly regarding his father through his curls, holding close to the skirts of his mother's dress. "'Isn't he beautiful?' said Eliza, lifting his long curls and kissing him. "'I wish he'd never been born,' said George bitterly. "'I wish I'd never been born myself.' Surprised and frightened, Eliza sat down, leaned her head on her husband's shoulder, and burst into tears. "'There now, Eliza.' "'It's too bad for me to make you feel so, poor girl,' said he fondly. "'It's too bad. Oh, how I wish you never had seen me. You might have been happy.' "'George, George, how can you talk so? What dreadful thing has happened, or is going to happen? I'm sure we've been very happy till lately.' "'So we have, dear,' said George. Then drawing his child on his knee, he gazed intently on his glorious dark eyes and passed his hands through his long curls. "'Just like you, Eliza. And you are the handsomest woman I ever saw, and the best one I ever wished to see. But, 
Oh, I wish I'd never seen you, nor you me. Oh, George, how can you? Yes, Eliza, it's all misery, misery, misery. My life is bitter as wormwood. The very life is burning out of me. I'm a poor, miserable, forlorn drudge. I shall only drag you down with me, that's all. What's the use of our trying to do anything, trying to do no anything, trying to, to be anything? What's the use of living? I wish I was dead. Oh, now, dear George, that is really wicked. I know how you feel about losing your place in the factory, and you have a hard master. But pray be patient, and perhaps something— Patient! said he, interrupting her. Haven't I been patient? Did I say a word when he came and took me away, for no earthly reason, from the place where everybody was kind to me? I'd paid him truly every cent of my earnings, and they all say I worked well." "'Well, it is dreadful,' said Eliza. "'But after all, he is your master, you know.' "'My master! And who made him my master? That's what I think of. What right has he to me? I'm a man as much as he is. I'm a better man than he is. I know more about business than he does. I am a better manager than he is. I can read better than he can, I can write a better hand, and I've learned it all myself, and no thanks to him. I've learned it in spite of him. And now what right has he to make a dray-horse of me, to take me from things I can do, and do better than he can, and put me to work that any horse can do? He tries to do it. He says he'll bring me down and humble me, and he puts me to just the hardest, meanest, and dirtiest work on purpose. Oh, George, George, you frighten me. Why, I never heard you talk so. I'm afraid you'll do something dreadful. I don't wonder at your feelings at all, but, oh, do be careful, do, do for my sake, for Harry's. I have been careful, and I have been patient, but it's growing worse and worse. Flesh and blood can't bear it any longer. Every chance he can get to insult and torment me, he takes. I thought I could do my work well, and keep on quiet, and have some time to read and learn out of work hours. But the more he see I can do, the more he loads on. He says that, though I don't say anything, he sees I got the devil in me, and he means to bring it out, and one of these days it will come out in a way that he won't like, or I'm mistaken." "'Oh, dear, what shall we do?' said Eliza mournfully. "'It was only yesterday,' said George as I was busy loading stones into a cart, that young Massa Tom stood there, slashing his whip so near the horse that the creature was frightened. I asked him to stop, as pleasant as I could. He just kept right on. I begged him again, and then he turned on me and began striking me. I held his hand, and then he screamed and kicked and ran to his father, and told him that I was fighting him. He came in a rage, and said he'd teach me who was my master and he tied me to a tree and cut switches for young master and told him that he might whip me till he was tired and he did do it if i don't make him remember it some time and the brow of the young man grew dark and his eyes burned with an expression that made his young wife tremble who made this man my master that's what i want to know he said well said eliza mournfully i always thought that i must obey my master and mistress or i couldn't be a christian there is some sense in it, in your case. They have brought you up like a child, fed you, clothed you, indulged you, and taught you, so that you have a good education. That is some reason why they should claim you. But I have been kicked and cuffed and sworn at, and at the best only let alone. 
And what do I owe? I've paid for all my keeping a hundred times over. I won't bear it. No, I won't," he said, clenching his hand with a fierce frown. Eliza trembled and was silent. She had never seen her husband in this mood before, and her gentle system of ethics seemed to bend like a reed in the surges of such passion. "'You know poor little Carlo that you gave me,' added George. "'The creature has been about all the comfort that I've had. He has slept with me nights, and followed me round days, and kind of looked at me as if he understood how I felt. Well, the other day I was just feeding him with a few old scraps I picked up by the kitchen door, and Master came along, and said I was feeding him up at his expense, and that he couldn't afford to have every nigger keeping his dog, and ordered me to tie a stone to his neck and throw him into the pond. Oh, George, you didn't do it. Do it? Not I, but he did. Masser and Tom pelted the poor drowning creature with stones, poor thing. He looked at me so mournful as if he wondered why I didn't save him. I had to take a flogging because I wouldn't do it myself. I don't care. Masser will find out that I'm one that whipping won't tame. My day will come yet, if he don't look out. What are you going to do? Oh, George, don't do anything wicked. If you only trust in God and try to do right, he'll deliver you. I ain't a Christian like you, Eliza. My heart's full of bitterness. I can't trust in God. Why does he let things be so?" Oh, George, we must have faith. Mistress says that when all things go wrong to us, we must believe that God is doing the very best. That's easy to say for people that are sitting on their sofas and riding in their carriages. But let em be where I am. I guess it would come some harder. I wish I could be good. But my heart burns, and can't be reconciled anyhow. You couldn't in my place. You can't now, if I tell you all I've got to say. You don't know the whole yet. What can be coming now? Well, lately Massa's been saying that he was a fool to let me marry off the place, and that he hates Mr. Shelby and all his tribe because they are proud and hold their heads up above him, and that I've got proud notions from you, and he says he won't let me come here any more, and that I shall take a wife and settle down on his place. At first he only scolded and grumbled these things. But yesterday he told me that I should take Mina for a wife, and settle down in a cabin with her, or he would sell me down river. Why, but you were married to me, by the minister, as much as if you'd been a white man," said Eliza simply. Don't you know a slave can't be married? There is no law in this country for that. I can't hold you for my wife if he chooses to part us. That's why I wish I'd never seen you. Why, I wish I'd never been born. It would have been better for us both. It would have been better for this poor child if he had never been born. All this may happen to him yet. Oh, but Master is so kind. Yes, but who knows? He may die, and then he may be sold to nobody knows who. What pleasure is it that he is handsome and smart and bright? I tell you, Eliza, that a sword will pierce through your soul for every good and pleasant thing your child is or has. It will make him worth too much for you to keep." The words smote heavily on Eliza's heart. The vision of the trader came before her eyes, and as if someone had struck her a deadly blow, she turned pale and gasped for breath. She looked nervously out on the veranda where the boy, tired of the grave conversation, had retired and where he was riding triumphantly up and down on Mr. Shelby's walking-stick. He would have spoken to tell her husband her fears, but checked herself. "'No, no, he has enough to bear, poor fellow,' she thought. "'No, I won't tell him. 
Besides, it ain't true. Mrs. never deceives us.' "'So, Eliza, my girl,' said the husband mournfully, "'bear up now, and good-bye, for I'm going.' "'Going, George? Going where?' "'To Canada,' said he, straightening himself up. "'And when I'm there, I'll buy you. That's all the hope that's left us. You have a kind master that won't refuse to sell you. I'll buy you and the boy. God helping me, I will.' "'Oh, dreadful! If you should be taken—' "'I won't be taken, Eliza. I'll die first. I'll be free, or I'll die.' "'You won't kill yourself?' "'No need of that. They will kill me fast enough. They never will get me down the river alive.' "'Oh, George, for my sake, do be careful. Don't do anything wicked. Don't lay hands on yourself or anybody else. You are tempted too much, too much. But don't—go you must, but go carefully, prudently. Pray, God, to help you.' Well, then, Eliza, hear my plan. Massa took it into his head to send me right by here, with a note to Mr. Symes, that lives a mile past. I believe he expected I should come here to tell you what I have. It would please him if he thought it would aggravate Shelby's folks, as he calls them. I'm going home quite resigned, you understand, as if all was over. I've got some preparations made, and there are those that will help me and in the course of a week or so I shall be among the missing some day. Pray for me, Eliza. Perhaps the good Lord will hear you." "'Oh, pray yourself, George, and go trusting in him. Then you won't do anything wicked.' "'Well, now, good-bye,' said George, holding Eliza's hands and gazing into her eyes without moving. They stood silent. Then there were last words, and sobs, and bitter weeping. Such parting as those may make whose hope to meet again is as the spider's web, and the husband and wife were parted. End of chapter 3 This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Tom's Cabin by Harriet Beecher Stowe Chapter 4 an evening in Uncle Tom's cabin. The cabin of Uncle Tom was a small log building close adjoining to the house, as the negro par excellence designates his master's dwelling. In front it had a neat garden patch where, every summer, strawberries, raspberries, and a variety of fruits and vegetables flourished under careful tending. The whole front of it was covered by a large scarlet bignonia and a native multiflora rose, which, in twisting and interlacing, left scarce a vestige of the rough logs to be seen. Here also in summer various brilliant annuals, such as marigolds, petunias, four-clocks, found an indulgent corner in which to unfold their splendors, and were the delight and pride of Aunt Chloe's heart. Let us enter the dwelling. The evening meal at the house is over, and Aunt Chloe, who presided over its preparations as head cook, has left to inferior officers in the kitchen the business of clearing away and washing dishes, and come out into her own snug territories, to get her old man's supper. Therefore doubt not that it is her you see by the fire, presiding with anxious interest over certain frizzling items in a stew-pan, and anon, with grave consideration, lifting the cover of a bake-kettle, from whence steam forth indubitable intimations of something good. 
A round, black, shining face is hers, so glossy as to suggest the idea that she might have been washed over with white of eggs, like one of her own tea-rusks. Her whole plump countenance beams with satisfaction and contentment from under her well-starched checked turban, bearing on it, however, if we must confess it, a little of that tinge of self-consciousness which becomes the first cook of the neighborhood, as Aunt Chloe was universally held and acknowledged to be. A cook she certainly was, in the very bone and center of her soul. Not a chicken or turkey or duck in the barnyard but looked grave when they saw her approaching, and seemed evidently to be reflecting on their latter end, and certain it was that she was always meditating on trussing, stuffing, and roasting, to a degree that was calculated to inspire terror in any reflecting fowl living. Her corn-cake, in all its varieties of hoe-cake, dodgers, muffins, and other species too numerous to mention, was a sublime mystery to all less practised compounders, and she would shake her fat sides with honest pride and merriment, as she would narrate the fruitless efforts that one and another of her compeers had made to attain to her elevation. The arrival of company at the house, the arranging of dinners and suppers in style, awoke all the energies of her soul, and no sight was more welcome to her than a pile of travelling trunks launched on the veranda, for then she foresaw fresh efforts and fresh triumphs. Just at present, however, Aunt Chloe is looking into the bake-pan, in which congenial operation we shall leave her till we finish our picture of the cottage. In one corner of it stood a bed, covered neatly with a snowy spread, and by the side of it was a piece of carpeting of some considerable size. On this piece of carpeting Aunt Chloe took her stand, as being decidedly in the upper walks of life, and it, and the bed by which it lay, and the whole corner, in fact, were treated with distinguished consideration, and made, so far as possible, sacred from the marauding inroads and desecrations of little folks. In fact, that corner was the drawing-room of the establishment. In the other corner was a bed of much humbler pretensions, and evidently designed for use. The wall over the fireplace was adorned with some very brilliant scriptural prints, and a portrait of General Washington, drawn and colored in a manner which would certainly have astonished that hero, if ever he happened to meet with its like. On a rough bench in the corner, a couple of woolly-headed boys, with glistening black eyes and fat shining cheeks, were busy in superintending the first walking operations of the baby, which, as is usually the case, consisted in getting up on its feet, balancing a moment, and then tumbling down, each successive failure being violently cheered as something decidedly clever. A table, somewhat rheumatic in its limbs, was drawn out in front of the fire, and covered with a cloth, displaying cups and saucers of a decidedly brilliant pattern, with other symptoms of an approaching meal. At this table was seated Uncle Tom, Mr. Shelby's best hand, who, as he is to be the hero of our story, we must daguerreotype for our readers. He was a large, broad-chested, powerfully made man, of a full glossy black, and a face whose truly African features were characterized by an expression of grave and steady good sense, united with much kindliness and benevolence. There was something about his whole air self-respecting and dignified, yet united with a confiding and humble simplicity. 
He was very busy, at this moment, on a slate lying before him, on which he was carefully and slowly endeavouring to accomplish a copy of some letters, in which operation he was overlooked by young Master George, a smart, bright boy of thirteen, who appeared fully to realize the dignity of his position as instructor. "'Not that way, Uncle Tom, not that way,' said he, briskly, as Uncle Tom laboriously brought up the tail of his G the wrong side out. "'That makes a Q, you see.' "'La sakes, now, does it?' said Uncle Tom, looking with a respectful, admiring air, as his young teacher flourishingly scrawled Q's and G's innumerable for his edification. And then, taking the pencil in his big, heavy fingers, he patiently recommenced. "'How easy white folks allus does things,' said Aunt Chloe, pausing while she was greasing a griddle with a scrap of bacon on her fork, and regarding young Master George with pride. "'The way he can write now, and read, too, and then to come out here evenings and read his lessons to us, it's mighty interesting.' "'But, Aunt Chloe, I'm getting mighty hungry,' said George. "'Isn't that cake in the skillet almost done?' "'Most done, Master George,' said Aunt Chloe, lifting the lid and peeping in. Browning beautiful, a real lovely brown. Ah, uh, let me alone for that. Missus let Sally try to make some cake t'other day, just to larn her. She said, "Oh, go away, Missus," said I. It really hurts my feelings now to see good vittles spout that our way. Cake rise all to one side, no shape at all, no more than my shoe. Go away. And with this final expression of contempt for Sally's greenness, Aunt Chloe whipped the cover off the baked kettle and disclosed to view a neatly baked pound-cake, of which no city confectioner need to have been ashamed. This being evidently the central point of the entertainment, Aunt Chloe began now to bustle about earnestly in the supper department. "'Here you, Mose and Pete! Get out the way, you niggers! Get away, Meriky, honey! Mammy'll give her baby some fin by and by. Now, Master George, you just take off them books, and set down now with my old man, and I'll take up the sausages and have the first griddle full of cakes on your plates in less than no time." "'They wanted me to come to dinner in the house,' said George. "'But I knew what was what too well for that, Aunt Chloe.' "'So you did, so you did, honey,' said Aunt Chloe, heaping the smoking batter-cakes on his plate. "'You knowed your old auntie'd keep the best for you. Oh, let you alone for that. Go away.' And with that, Auntie gave George a nudge with her finger, designed to be immensely facetious and turned again to her griddle with great briskness. "'Now for the cake,' said Massa George, when the activity of the griddle department had somewhat subsided, and with that the youngster flourished a large knife over the article in question. "'La, bless you, Massa George,' said Aunt Chloe, with earnestness, catching his arm. "'You wouldn't be for cutting it with that our great heavy knife. Smash all down, spile all the pretty rise of it. Here, I've got a thin old knife. I keeps sharp a purpose.' Dar now, see? Comes apart light as a feather. Now, eat away. You won't get anything to beat that ar. Tom Lincoln says, said George, speaking with his mouthful, that there Jinny is a better cook than you. Dem Lincolns ain't much count, no way, said Aunt Chloe, contemptuously. I mean, set alongside our folks. They spectable folks enough in a kinder plain way, but as to getting up anything in style, they don't begin to have a notion on it. Set Master Lincoln now, alongside Master Shelby. Good Lord! And Mrs. Lincoln! Can she kinder sweep it into a room like my missus? So kinder splendid, you know. Oh, go away! Don't tell me nothing of them Lincolns. 
and Aunt Chloe tossed her head as one who hoped she did know something of the world. "'Well, though, I've heard you say,' said George, "'that Jinny was a pretty fair cook.' "'So I did,' said Aunt Chloe. "'I may say that. Good, plain, common cookin'. Jinny'll do. Make a good pone of bread. Ballard taters far. Her corn-cakes isn't extra, not extra now. Jinny's corn-cakes isn't. But then they's far. But, lor, come to be hired branches, and what can she do? Why, she makes pies. Sartin she does. But what kind of crust? Can she make your real flecky paste, as melts in your mouth, and lies all up like a puff? Now, I went over thar when Miss Mary was gwine to be married, and Jinny she just showed me the, the wedding pies. Jinny and I is good friends, you know. I never said nothing. But go long, Master George. Why, I shouldn't sleep a wink for a week if I had a batch of pies like them are. Why, they want no count tall. I suppose Jinny thought they were ever so nice, said George. Thought so, didn't she? Thar she was, showin' em as innocent. You see, it's just here. Jinny don't know. Lor, the family ain't nothin'. She can't be spected to know. Tant no fault am. Oh, Master George, you doesn't know half your privileges in your family in bringin' up. Here Aunt Chloe sighed and rolled up her eyes with emotion. I'm sure, Aunt Chloe, I understand. I, my pie and pudding privileges, said George. Ask Tom Lincoln if I don't crow over him every time I meet him. Aunt Chloe sat back in her chair and indulged in a hearty guffaw of laughter at this witticism of young Masser's, laughing till the tears rolled down her black, shining cheeks, and varying the exercise with playfully slapping and poking Massa Georgie, and telling him to go away, and that he was a case, that he was fit to kill her, and that he sartin would kill her one of these days, and between each of these sanguinary predictions, going off into a laugh, each longer and stronger than the other till George really began to think that he was a very dangerously witty fellow, and that it became him to be careful how he talked, as funny as he could. "'And so ye yelled, Tom, did ye? Oh, Lord, what young'uns will be up to? Ye crowed over, Tom! Oh, Lord! Master George, if ye wouldn't make a horn-bug laugh!' "'Yes,' said George. I says to him, "'Tom, you ought to see some of Aunt Chloe's pies. They're the right sort,' says I. Pity now Tom couldn't, said Aunt Chloe, on whose benevolent heart the idea of Tom's benighted condition seemed to make a strong impression. You oughter just ask him here to dinner some of these times, Master George, she added. It would look quite pretty of you. You know, Master George, you oughtn't to feel above nobody on count your privileges, cause all our privileges is given to us. We ought allus to remember that, said Aunt Chloe, looking quite serious. "'Well, I mean to ask Tom here some day next week,' said George. "'And you do your prettiest, Aunt Chloe, and we'll make him stare. Won't we make him eat so he won't get over it for a fortnight?' "'Yes, yes, certain,' said Uncle Chloe, delighted. "'You'll see, Lord, to think of some of our dinners. You mind that our great chicken pie made when we gove the dinner to General Knox? I and Mrs. we come pretty near quarrelling about that our crust.' What does get into ladies sometimes, I don't know. But sometimes, when a body has the heaviest kind of sponsibility on em, as ye may say, uh, and is all kinder serious and taken up, they takes that our time to be hanging round and kinder interfering. Now, Missus, she wanted me to do this way, and she wanted me to do that way, and finally I got kinder sarcy and says, Now, Missus, 
Do just look at them beautiful white hands o' yourn, with long fingers and all them sparkly with rings, like my white lilies when the dew's on em. And look at my great black stumpin' hands. Now, don't you think that the Lord must have meant me to make the pie-crust, and you to stay in the parlor? Dar, I was just so sarcy, Mas George. And what did Mother say? said George. Say? Why, she kind of larfed in her eyes, them great handsome eyes of hern. Oh, and says she, Well, Aunt Chloe, I think you are about in the right on it, says she, and she went off in the parlor. She ought to crack me over the head for being so sarcy, but thar's war it is. I can't do nothing with ladies in the kitchen. Well, you made out well with that dinner. I remember everybody said so, said George. Didn't I? And want I behind the dining-room door dat berry day? And didn't I see the general pass his plate three times for some more dat berry pie? And says he, You must have an uncommon cook, Mrs. Shelby. Lord, I was fit to split myself. And the general, he knows what cookin' is, said Aunt Chloe, drawing herself up with an air. Very nice man, the general. He comes of one of the very fustest families in old Virginny. He knows what's what now, as well as I do, the general. You see, there's pants in all pies, Master George, but tain't everybody knows what they is, or as order be. But the general, he knows. I knew by his marks he made. Yes, he knows what the pants is. By this time Master George had arrived at that pass to which even a boy can come, under uncommon circumstances, when he really could not eat another morsel. And, therefore, he was at leisure to notice the pile of woolly heads and glistening eyes which were regarding their operations hungrily from the opposite corner. "'Here you, Mose, Pete,' he said, breaking off liberal bits and throwing it at them. "'You want some, don't you? Come, Aunt Chloe, bake them some cakes.' And George and Tom moved to a comfortable seat in the chimney-corner, while Aunt Chloe, after baking a goodly pile of cakes, took her baby on her lap, and began alternately filling its mouth and her own, and distributing to Mose and Pete, who seemed rather to prefer eating theirs as they rolled about on the floor under the table, tickling each other, and occasionally pulling the baby's toes. "'Oh, go long, will ye?' said the mother, giving now and then a kick, in a kind of a general way, under the table, when the movement became too obstreperous. Can't you be decent when white folks comes to see you? Stop dat hour now, will you? Better mind yourselves, or I'll take you down a buttonhole lower when Massa George is gone." What meaning was couched under this terrible threat, it is difficult to say, but certain it is that its awful indistinctness seemed to produce very little impression on the young sinners addressed. "'Law, now,' said Uncle Tom, "'they are so full of tickle all the while. They can't behave theirselves.' Here the boys emerged from under the table, and, with hands and faces well plastered with molasses, began a vigorous kissing of the baby. "'Get along with you,' said the mother, pushing away their woolly heads. "'You'll all stick together and never get clar if you do that fashion. Go along to spring and wash yourselves,' she said, seconding her exhortations with a slap which resounded very formidably, but which seemed only to knock out so much more laugh from the young ones, as they tumbled precipitately over each other, out the doors, where they fairly screamed with merriment. "'Did you ever see such aggravating young uns?' said Aunt Chloe, rather complacently, as, producing an old towel kept for such emergencies, she poured a little water out of the cracked teapot on it, and began rubbing off the molasses from the baby's face and hands. And, having polished her till she shone, she set her down in Tom's lap while she busied herself in clearing away supper. 
the baby employed the intervals in pulling Tom's nose, scratching his face, and burying her fat hands in his woolly hair, which last operation seemed to afford her special content. "'Ain't she a pert young un?' said Tom, holding her from him to take a full-length view. Then, getting up, he set her on his broad shoulder, and began capering and dancing with her, while Master George snapped at her with his pocket-handkerchief, and Mose and Pete, now returned again, roared after her like bears, till Aunt Chloe declared that they fairly took her head off with their noise. As, according to her own statement, this surgical operation was a matter of daily occurrence in the cabin, the declaration no whit abated the merriment, till every one had roared and tumbled and danced themselves down to a state of composure. "'Well, now, I hopes you're done,' said Aunt Chloe, who had been busy in pulling out a rude box of a trundle-bed. "'And now you and Mose and Pete get into thar, for we's going to have the meetin'. "'Oh, mother, we don't want her. We wants to sit up to meetin'. Meetin' is so curious. We likes him.' "'Lie, Aunt Chloe, shove it under, and let him sit up,' said Master George, decisively, giving a push to the rude machine. Aunt Chloe, having thus saved appearances, seemed highly delighted to push the thing under, saying, as she did so, "'Well, maybe twill do him some good.' The house now resolved itself into a committee of the whole, to consider the accommodations and arrangements for the meeting. "'What we's to do for cheers now, I declare I don't know,' said Aunt Chloe. As the meeting had been held at Uncle Tom's weekly, for an indefinite length of time, without any more cheers, there seemed some encouragement to hope that a way would be discovered at present. "'Old Uncle Peter sung both de legs out of dat oldest cheer last week,' suggested Mose. "'You go long. I'll bound you pulled him out. Some of your shines,' said Aunt Chloe. "'Well, it'll stand, if it's only keeps jam up against the wall,' said Mose. Then Uncle Peter mustn't sit in it, cause he allus hitches when he gets a singin'. He hitched pretty nigh across the room t'other night," said Pete. "Good Lord, get him in it then," said Mose. And then he'd begin, "Come saints and sinners, hear me tell," and then down he'd go. And Mose imitated precisely the nasal tones of the old man tumbling on the floor to illustrate the supposed catastrophe. "Come now, be decent, can't you?" said Aunt Chloe. "Ain't you ashamed?" Master George, however, joined the offender in the laugh, and declared decidedly that Mose was a buster, so the maternal admonition seemed rather to fail of effect. "'Well, old man,' said Aunt Chloe, "'you'll have to tote in them our barrels. Mother's barrels is like that our widders Master George was reading about in the good book. They never fails,' said Mose, aside to Peter. "'I'm sure one of them caved in last week,' said Pete, and let em all down in the middle o' dat singin' dat ar was failin', warn't it?' During this aside between Mose and Pete, two empty casks had been rolled into the cabin, and being secured from rolling by stones on each side, boards were laid across them, which arrangement, together with the turning down of certain tubs and pails, and the disposing of the rickety chairs, at last completed the preparation. "'Master George is such a beautiful reader now. I know he'll stay to read for us,' said Aunt Chloe. "'Pears like twill be so much more interesting.' George very readily consented for your boy is always ready for anything that makes him of importance. The room was soon filled with a motley assemblage, from the old gray-headed patriarch of eighty to the young girl and lad of fifteen. A little harmless gossip ensued on various themes, such as where old Aunt Sally got her new red headkerchief, and how Mrs. was going to give Lizzie that spotted muslin gown when she got her new barrage made up. 
and how Massa Shelby was thinking of buying a new sorrel colt that was going to prove an addition to the glories of the place. A few of the worshippers belonged to families hard by, who had got permission to attend, and who brought in various choice scraps of information, about the sayings and doings at the house and on the place, which circulated as freely as the same sort of small change does in higher circles. After a while the singing commenced, to the evident delight of all present. Not even all the disadvantage of nasal intonation could prevent the effect of the naturally fine voices, in airs at once wild and spirited. The words were sometimes the well-known and common hymns sung in the churches about, and sometimes of a wilder, more indefinite character, picked up at camp-meetings. The chorus of one of them, which ran as follows, was sung with great energy and unction. Die on the field of battle! die on the field of battle, glory in my soul. Another's special favorite had oft repeated the words, Oh, I'm going to glory, won't you come along with me? Don't you see the angels beckoning and calling me away? Don't you see the golden city and the everlasting day? There were others which made incessant mention of Jordan's banks and Canaan's fields and the new Jerusalem, for the negro mind, impassioned and imaginative, always attaches itself to hymns and expressions of a vivid and pictorial nature. And as they sung, some laughed, and some cried, and some clapped hands, or shook hands rejoicingly with each other, as if they had fairly gained the other side of the river. Various exhortations, or relations of experience, followed, and intermingled with the singing. One old gray-headed woman, long past work, but much revered as a sort of chronicle of the past, rose, and leaning on her staff, said, "'Well, chillin, well, I'm mighty glad to hear y'all, and see y'all once more, cause I don't know when I'll be gone to glory, but I've done got ready, chillin. Pears like I'd got my little bundle all tied up and my bonnet on, just a-waitin' for the stage to come long and take me home. Sometimes in the night I think I hear the wheels a-rattlin', and I'm lookin' out all the time. Now you just be ready, too, for I tell you all, chillin," she said, striking her staff hard on the floor, "'Dat our glory is a mighty thing. It's a mighty thing, chillin'. You don't know nothin' about it. It's wonderful.' And the old creature sat down, with streaming tears, as wholly overcome, while the whole circle struck up. Oh, Canaan, bright Canaan, I'm bound for the land of Canaan. Massa George, by request, read the last chapters of Revelation, often interrupted by such exclamations as, The sakes now! Only hear that! Just think, aunt! Is all that a-comin' sure enough? George, who was a bright boy and well-trained in religious things by his mother, finding himself an object of general admiration, threw in expositions of his own from time to time, with a commendable seriousness and gravity, for which he was admired by the young and blessed by the old, and it was agreed on all hands that a minister couldn't lay it off better than he did. That was really mason. Uncle Tom was a sort of patriarch in religious matters in the neighborhood, having naturally an organization in which the morale was strongly predominant together with a greater breadth and cultivation of mind than obtained among his companions, he was looked up to with great respect as a sort of minister among them. 
and the simple, hearty, sincere style of his exhortations might have edified even better educated persons. But it was in prayer that he especially excelled. Nothing could exceed the touching simplicity, the childlike earnestness of his prayer, enriched with the language of Scripture, which seemed so entirely to have wrought itself into his being as to have become a part of himself, and to drop from his lips unconsciously. In the language of a pious old negro he prayed right up, and so much did his prayer always work on the devotional feelings of his audiences, that there seemed often a danger that it would be lost altogether in the abundance of the responses which broke out everywhere around him. While this scene was passing in the cabin of the man, one quite otherwise passed in the halls of the master. The trader and Mr. Shelby were seated together in the dining-room aforenamed, at a table covered with papers and writing-utensils. Mr. Shelby was busy in counting some bundles of bills which, as they were counted, he pushed over to the trader, who counted them likewise. "'All fair,' said the trader. "'And now for signing these, er—' Mr. Shelby hastily drew the bills of sale toward him, and signed them, like a man that hurries over some disagreeable business, and then pushed them over with the money. Haley produced from a well-worn valise a parchment which, after looking over it a moment, he handed to Mr. Shelby, who took it with a gesture of suppressed eagerness. "'Well, now, the thing's done,' said the trader, getting up. "'It's done,' said Mr. Shelby, in a musing tone, and fetching a long breath, repeated, "'It's done.' "'You don't seem to feel much pleased with it, appears to me,' said the trader. "'Haley,' said Mr. Shelby, "'I hope you'll remember that you promised on your honor you wouldn't sell Tom without knowing what sort of hands he's going into.' "'Why, you's just done it, sir,' said the trader. "'Circumstances, you well know, obliged me,' said Shelby haughtily. "'Well, you know, they may oblige me, too,' said the trader. "'Howsomever, I'll do the very best I can in getting Tom a good berth. As to my treatin' on him bad, you needn't be a grain feared. If there's anything that I thank the Lord for, it is that I'm never no ways cruel.' After the expositions which the trader had previously given of his humane principles, Mr. Shelby did not feel particularly reassured by these declarations. But as they were the best comfort the case admitted of, he allowed the trader to depart in silence, and betook himself to a solitary cigar. End of chapter 4